Well, good morning, Grace Baptist Church family. It is a privilege, a humbling privilege to be here, and it's been an exciting process, and I am just so thankful for the leadership of your elders and your search committee, and I hope that you're able to come back this afternoon and we can discuss the questions that you have, because obviously our goal in all of this is to seek God's will for his church and ultimately for his glory. And I just want to thank you for so warmly welcoming us and our family. And if I haven't gotten to meet you in person yet, I would love to have that opportunity uh, sometime today. Well, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Matthew chapter 6, as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount. And as you are turning there, I want to grab this box that I brought along with me. It is a box of treasures from my attic. Treasures from my childhood that I thought, you know, we don't know each other that well. So maybe if I share a few of the treasures from my childhood, you'll start to get to know me a little bit better. These are different uh, trophies and certificates and things like that that at the time were really important to me, okay? So I grew up in, uh, on a farm in Ohio, so the first one I'm going to show you is my Grand Champion Calf Trophy right here. Now I want to remind you, envy is a sin, so keep your heart in check here, okay? <laughs> the next one I have here is my State FFA Degree. Rural soil judging was my specialty, all right? So again, I, I hope that you are duly impressed. And then this one is, uh, is personal and important to me. This is my salutatorian medal when I graduated from high school. And the reason I say it's important to me was because all through high school, my grades were so incredibly important to me. Like I just was living to achieve and get good grades. And do you know what I got for it? A medal. Isn't that exciting? And then the last one I have here is a certificate from one of the, the first public speaking competitions I was a part of. I think I took third place. Yep, third place right there. So I hope that you're really impressed by these things. Uh, but part of the reason that I share it is because in the moment, at that point in my childhood, these things were enormously important to me. I poured a massive amount of energy and attention into these things because I thought that they were really significant. But now all these treasures and trophies are really merely trinkets in my attic. And you probably have a box kind of like that, or maybe lots of boxes like that in your attic too. You see, Jesus, at this point in the Sermon on the Mount, has been pressing his audience to look beyond surface reputation to deep heart motive, to consider what it is that honors the king, not just what impresses the people. And so what he's going to do in our text this morning is to hone in on our heart motive, on what it is that we are wanting, loving, and seeking as we approach both wealth and worry. But what I want us to understand is as we go through these very practical topics of wealth and worry, he's not fundamentally talking about wealth and worry, but at its core, he's talking about worship. What is it that you are seeking as your highest priority? What is it the thing that your heart is ultimately devoted to? Because what you treasure, it will ultimately reflect where your heart is. And so wealth and worry are really kind of just indicators of what it is that you're really serving. What is your loving, trusting, and obeying? And so Jesus is going to continue to bring us to this point of decision in our text. Are you going to lay up treasure for yourself on earth or in heaven? Are you going to serve God as your master or are you going to serve wealth? 
Are you going to seek a kingdom of comfort? Or are you going to seek first the kingdom of God? Now, in the context, Jesus has been warning his audience not to be like the hypocritical Pharisees, even though they were the religious leaders of the day who had immense social standing. But now he's going to warn them not to fall into the trap of worldly ambition. In the immediate context, in verse 18, he's told them that you ought to do your fasting in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And so it's this theme of reward that Jesus picks up on as he begins to unpack where our treasure is and where we are laying it up for ourselves, whether on earth or in heaven. So let's begin in verse 19. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. At its plainest sense, Jesus here is talking about our relationship with money and possessions. What is it that we are wanting or how is it that we are treating money and material possessions as we have opportunity to grab them or acquire them here on this earth? Now let's be clear, Jesus is not saying that it's somehow wrong to earn a good living or provide for your family, or save for the future, or even enjoy the good gifts that God gives you. What Jesus is warning us of is turning to these material possessions as an object of our devotion. That we are seeking escape or entertainment, comfort or convenience at a higher degree than we are seeking the kingdom of God. And so he is going to warn us here against the greed that lays inside each of our hearts. Because we always want more, don't we? Our heart always tells us, oh, if you can just have a little bit more, then you will be happy. But Jesus is warning us that greed is spiritually corrosive in our lives. And I have to tell you, as a pastor, there are many times where I have people come into my office and confess that they're struggling with different sins. Uh, Sins of purity, sins of anger, sins of selfishness. I have not once had someone sit in my office and say, I really struggle with greed. Because greed is one of those sins we always imagine somebody else struggles with, right? Oh, the person that lives in that house, they probably struggle with greed. Oh, the person that drives that car, they're the ones who struggle with greed. But Jesus is warning us that we need to be investing for eternity, lest our hearts become so enamored with wealth that they are led astray. This is actually the warning that Paul gives us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. He says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You see, there's this idea that if I can just accumulate more, if I can just take that next step, that somehow it will satisfy or make me significant. But Jesus is also warning us here that it's not just about money. Where we invest our money ultimately reveals where we've already invested our heart. That's what he says in verse 21. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That means if I follow the way you spend your money, I have a clear picture of what it is that really is most important to you. Your priorities are reflected in your bank account, in your credit card statement in your portfolio. 
And so Jesus is warning us that if we begin to lay up treasure for ourselves by acquiring and, and holding on to these material possessions, then we are in grave spiritual danger. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. This doesn't apply to me. Do you know why? I don't have any money. I'm broke. So I'm not laying up treasure for myself because I don't have any treasure at all. But here's what we need to understand. Jesus, I believe, yes, is talking about material wealth, but he isn't only talking about material wealth. He is talking ultimately about any pursuit that we might pour our energy, attention, and resources into that ultimately has no eternal value. That means it could be money or possessions or something that we can buy with money, but it might also be some outlet or avenue of our energy that makes no difference in eternity. And so Jesus is warning against laying up treasure on earth because often we spend our time, our energy, and money on things that promise comfort or success, but they are ultimately empty and worthless. You see, many times we think to ourselves, if I could just finish this degree, then, then I will have arrived. If I could just get this promotion, that pay raise that would come with it, then finally we wouldn't have to worry about money anymore. If I could just resolve this health issue or just have this thing, then finally I would be content. But you see, there's something insidious about our hearts that always it's going to whisper more because it's never going to satisfy. And if it whispers more, it shouts now. That we don't want to have to patiently wait for it. We want it and we want it right now. So let's think about some of the ways in which that might happen in our own lives. What are some worthless things that we might be pursuing that have no eternal value? Let's start with our appearance. Maybe we spend so much time in the weight room or in front of the mirror that we want to look just so, that we focus so much on the outside that we don't really give attention to our personal character. Maybe it's that we're living for the approval of other people. And so we're constantly trying to manage our image, wanting to impress them and wanting them to think highly of us. And that treadmill runs us to exhaustion but doesn't get us anywhere. Maybe we're so focused on achieving the next thing, we want that promotion, that next degree, that next achievement that we've been longing for. And so we'll pour out all of our energy and hopes that then that will finally and fully satisfy. We start spending our time on fantasy football and social media. I know I'm meddling now. I mean, we, we cross that line. Maybe it's a hobby like golf or video games. Those things in and of themselves are not wrong, but if they have too much of our heart, they can be. Because Jesus is saying that if we are laying up treasure, if we are focused on only this earthly perspective, we will be short-sighted and we will be foolish. Instead, he tells us, don't do this. Instead, I want you to do this. I want you to pursue treasure in heaven because those other things are where moth and rust destroy and thieves break and steal. They are uncertain and unstable. Today, we might say the housing bubble could burst. The stock market could crash. Your company could downsize. All those things you've been looking to for success or significance could be taken away in a moment. But if instead you focus your attention on eternity, on living for God and his priorities, then suddenly your life has a value far beyond the comfort or convenience that you've been living for. You begin living for God's priorities and ultimately for his glory. And if you want to know what it means to be living to lay up treasure in heaven, Jesus has already been telling us that here in the Sermon on the Mount. 
by being humble, by being meek, by being a light that shines and salt in the earth, by uprooting sinful desires from our heart and living in a way that we are living for an audience of one. So when God becomes our greatest treasure, we will live to please him by investing what won't last in order to pursue what will last. Let's think about some of the ways that we can do that, that we can actually lay up treasure in heaven. And let's be clear, he's not saying that you get some special reward when you get to heaven. He's saying that the work that you're doing here will echo into eternity because you've invested it for him. First of all, let's talk about giving. If Jesus is talking about money, we should as well. If where our treasure is, our heart will be, then we ought to regularly, generously, and sacrificially be giving not only to our church, but to the needs of others. I understand you have a harvest offering coming up here, and I've heard many stories of the generosity of this church family to meet the practical and physical needs of people not only in your community, but around the world. Let's continue to cultivate that heart so that we are investing for eternity. Secondly, maybe it comes down to a matter of contentment. As you look at your heart, you realize that you've been pursuing debt and living beyond your means. And almost always when we're living beyond our means, it's an indication that we are living for this world and not thinking about our citizenship in heaven. But going beyond money now, let's think about how else we lay up treasure in heaven by discipling our children and investing in them that they might know and follow Christ. And not just offloading that responsibility to the church, thinking, well, the youth group or the children's ministry are going to take care of that. That we cultivate kingdom character by constantly humbling ourselves before the Lord and growing in our faith. By using the gifts and abilities that we have to serve other people. and By building bridges of the gospel into the lives of those that God has put in our lives. Because the reality is we are not owners of anything that we have. We are stewards God has given, us to them, given them to us temporarily, and we will be held accountable. So why then would we not take what won't last and invest it in what will last? Or as Jim Elliott famously said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine that you're a businessman that lives down in the Confederate South in the middle of the Civil War. And you've done quite well for yourself to where you've been able to accumulate a good amount of Confederate money. But you can see the handwriting on the wall that the Confederate army is going to lose and the Union army is going to win. If you had that anticipation, what would be your next move with your pile of Confederate money? You'd cash it in, wouldn't you? You'd take as much of it as you could and trade it for U.S. currency because you know in a matter of moments could be simply a worthless stack of paper. And you would keep only what was necessary to live for those next few months, and you'd invest the rest of it in what really will last. When Randy Alcorn tells this story in his book, The Treasure Principle, he concludes with this conclusion. He says, Jesus is then explaining that not only is pursuing wealth as a master sinful, but it is empty, foolish, and futile. Jesus now continues with an image that might be a little confusing initially, but he says in verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? I believe the simple principle of this image is that your eyes affect and direct every area of your life. 
You are aware of dangers where they exist. You can discern where you need to go and you can identify opportunities as well as challenges that lay before you. And so Jesus is saying if we have a proper spiritual perspective, if we are looking at our life not just as a moment in time in which we're living for ourselves, but as a subsection of eternity in which we are living for God, then we will begin to make choices that reflect those priorities. We'll begin to lay up for ourselves treasure that will last rather than wasting our time, energy, and attention on what ultimately won't. But if instead we choose to live for ourselves, he says, how great is that darkness because we are in bondage to sin even as we might be thinking that we are free. But now we come to verse 24 where it says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And what we need to understand here is that this image is actually slave imagery. In those days, there were many slaves that would be serving a master, and it's very different than an employee-employer relationship. The slave was owned by the master. His identity was wrapped up in his relationship to the master. His only goal, his singular purpose, was to live to please the master by carrying out the master's will. And no matter what anybody else around him might say, he had to only listen so that when he finished, the master would say, well done, my good and faithful slave. So what Jesus is saying here is that we are wired for worship. We are wired to love, trust, and obey something. But we have to choose what it is that we will worship. Are we going to worship God and love and trust him? Are we going to choose to worship things that are temporary, empty, and that ultimately can never satisfy? He gives us this choice, but it's clear that God is inviting us to find true satisfaction in him because we were made for a relationship with him. And so when we try to find satisfaction in anything else, we will find that we are empty, we are frustrated, we are hollow, until we finally submit ourselves to God. And rather than finding that his lordship, his mastery in our life is burdensome, we find that he is gentle and tender and kind, which is exactly what he's going to unpack in the following verses. But before we move beyond this, I think it's important for us to pause, because this morning we're going to be observing the Lord's table. We're going to be remembering the sacrifice of Christ. And Jesus died on the cross that we might be reconciled in our relationship with him, that we might know him and in knowing him have the one thing that will ultimately and fully satisfy. But we are prone to wander, aren't we? We're prone to be forgetful and to suffer from gospel amnesia, thinking that somehow we can now live independently of God or that we can confine him to a compartment of our life rather than allowing him to sit on its throne and so Jesus calls us to choose what we will ultimately be devoted to. God doesn't want a compartment of our heart. He wants to sit on its throne. There's an exclusivity here where you can attend different schools, you can work different jobs, but you can only be devoted to one Lord. Just like you're married, you can only be devoted to one spouse in God's plan. You can only be devoted to one thing ultimately in your life. But now Jesus shifts from these warnings about wealth and what they reflect about our heart to warnings about worry. And I think one of the reasons for this is Jesus is calling his disciples to live in a countercultural way, to, to go away from the pattern of the Pharisees and to reject their teaching in order to follow his. 
But as Chris Miller shared last week, the Pharisees were the power brokers of the day. If you wanted socioeconomic status or, or, or security, you had to kind of go along with what they were doing. And so if you resisted and rejected them, not only would you be persecuted, but you may not even be able to provide for your family. And so the underlying question here is, if I start living for this kingdom, if I start living to please God and to know him, who's going to take care of me? What happens when I start being persecuted, as Jesus said, I should consider myself blessed when it happens? What happens when I don't know if I can put food on the table for my children or a roof over their head? And so Jesus, so tenderly and pastorally in this passage, invites us now to faith and dependence and discovery of his goodness and faithfulness and kindness when we will simply trust and rest in him. And so he begins with a command. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. It is a clear-cut command that cuts right into our heart because we say, but what about, right? But I'm the exception. But you don't know my circumstances. But the key word in this text here is therefore. You see, your choice of your master in the previous verse is going to determine the direction of your life. It's going to shift the way that you approach the uncertainties of the present and the pressures that you will face in the future. And so he tells us that we are not to worry because we are going to be living ultimately for him. But let's talk about worry for a second, about what it is and is not. First of all, worry does not mean we can't plan or prepare for something. It doesn't mean that we can't anticipate a problem and begin working toward a solution. It doesn't mean that we can't be wise and discerning about the things that are going on in our life. Where worry becomes sinful as we begin to churn and turn these questions over and over again about the eventualities that we fear could ultimately come to, to pass. We pour frenetic energy into looking at all of our circumstances and trying to figure out what we can do to fix it, control it, or manage it. We begin to feel burdened by the uncertain circumstances that we are wrestling with. And so this morning, I want to define worry as an unhealthy concern for the cares of life that is rooted in wrong thinking and misguided emotion. So it's natural for us to be concerned about the cares of our life. Jesus says as much in this text. But it can cross a point where we begin to think, it all depends on me. And this is wrong thinking about who God is and who we are and wrong emotion. Many times what we do is we allow our emotions to become the engine that's pulling the train rather than the caboose that is following behind as the spirit leads and our heart and our mind guides us. And so Jesus is warning us that we can easily fall into this trap of worry. Now some of you are sitting here this morning and you think, yep, that's me. I'm a worrier. I'm always thinking about what's going to happen. I'm always concerned about what's going to take place. But there's other of you here this morning that maybe are saying, eh, that's not really me. You know, I'm pretty laid back. I'm pretty chill. Life is, is going pretty well for me. Let me suggest to you a few diagnostic questions that we can ask in order to determine whether worry has taken root in our heart. First of all, in your life, has fear begun to displace faith? That might be in just one small compartment or it might be in the entire thing. You might constantly be overwhelmed by the uncertainties of life such that it displaces, it pushes out our faith in God because we're so concerned that something could happen that's beyond our control. 
Secondly, that concern can become chronic and controlling, where we just can't stop thinking about it. We just turn it over and over again in our mind. We try to go to sleep, but it's the, first, it's the last thing on our mind when we, our head hits the pillow. It's the first thing on our mind when our feet hit the floor. And over and over again, we just can't stop being concerned about it. Third, we're paralyzed by indecision. We think about all the different possible ways that we could go and all the different dangers that could be there, and so we say, I don't know what to do, so I'm just going to be paralyzed here because I don't want to make the wrong choice, and I'm living in a spirit of fear. Fourth, we are focused on planning more than praying. Some of you don't think that you struggle with worry because you think you have everything under control. And so you're just all busy planning, and you say, no, I'm not worried, I'm just planning. But the key indication is what happens when things begin to spiral outside of your control? What happens when something comes up that you didn't expect? Do you begin to grip the steering wheel of your life that much tighter, trying to bring it back to the path you anticipated? Or do you hold it with open hands and say, God, I don't know where you're taking me, but I trust that you are good and that you have a plan. Finally, we demonstrate obsessive thinking or behavior. We turn things over and over again in our mind that make it so clear that it's a deep fear or insecurity. We're constantly checking our appearance in the mirror to see whether we look okay and whether others will approve. We're constantly checking our social media accounts to see what people think of the video or the picture that we just posted. We're constantly checking our bank account to see whether we have enough or how our portfolio is growing. And I think if we're honest as we examine ourselves, we all struggle with worry in different ways. But I want to encourage you to ask this question, this prayer from Psalm 139, verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. Because sometimes I think we don't even realize that the anxious thoughts are there. They've come to take up residence in our mind and our heart. And we've so excused them or rationalized them that we think that's just the way life always goes. But even as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, one of the purposes of it is to examine ourselves to make sure that we are in right relationship with God. And perhaps this morning as you pray this prayer, he's going to put his finger on some compartment of your heart, some facet of your life that he says, this right here, are you willing to surrender that to me? Are you willing to submit that to my lordship? Or are you going to continue clinging for control? Because I want to suggest to you that worry is simply a symptom of a worship problem. It's a little bit like if you ever have the check engine light come on in your car. How many of you had that experience? That's just such an awful feeling, isn't it? You're like, I don't know whether I didn't tighten the gas cap enough or whether the head gasket's about to blow. But you know there is something wrong under the hood as soon as that check engine light comes on. That's what worry is. And I hope that you're not like I had a good friend of mine when I was in seminary. The check engine light came on in their car and they didn't know what to do about it. So they put a piece of black tape over the check engine light. They said, well, I feel a lot better now. And if I'm honest, sometimes I do that spiritually. I, I feel these things. I experience the worry that's cropping up in my heart. I try to shove it down, push it away, ignore it, excuse it, and rationalize it. Because if I can be honest with you, there are many times where I struggle with worry that I fall victim to thinking that I can be self-sufficient, that it all depends on me, that I think to myself, well, somebody's got to solve that problem, so I need to solve it. Somebody needs to know this answer, and so I need to have that answer. 
If I just work hard enough and, and plan well enough, I can protect myself from the pressures of the present and the uncertainties of the future. But that's a lie. And as I struggle, there are many different ways that that crops up. Just earlier this year, as I was dealing with pandemic and pastoral ministry and all those things, there was a period of a couple weeks where I was racked with all kinds of physical symptoms I couldn't even understand. I couldn't sleep. My, my heart was racing. I was, was having uh, just all kinds of fear. And as I began to unpack it with the Lord and with some trusted friends, I realized I was thinking it all depended on me that I had to try to hold it all together, that I always had to have the right answer. And so what I want to suggest to you is that no matter what the manifestation is of anxiety or worry is in your life, it's that check engine light that warns you something has too much of your heart. Because always our emotion will follow our devotion. And so as we are feeling our emotions, the, the, the heart is guiding us in a particular way, we need to look at what it is that is compelling us to go in that direction. Because when we trust ourselves to control the pressures of the present and uncertainties of the future, we'll be overwhelmed with worry. For you, maybe you manifest it in your stomach. You have ulcers or indigestion because you're constantly just churning when something is weighing on your mind. For others, you struggle with sleepless nights. You just can't get that thought out of your mind of this problem that you don't know how to fix and you don't know for sure what to do. Others of you, you self-medicate with caffeine. All right, we're meddling now, right? Or sugar, or alcohol, or entertainment, or any other number of things that you might think will ultimately provide escape or relief. Maybe you're irritable to those who are around you or you feel like you just can't ever rest or relax because you feel like you always have to be on. So Jesus says, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. You say, Jesus, how do I do that? He's about to tell us in the following verses. He says, is not the life more than food and the body more than clothing? The birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you Oh, you of little. I love the pastoral gentleness of Jesus here. Oh, you of little faith. He isn't condemning them. He isn't rebuking them or wagging his head with his arms crossed saying, I'm so disappointed in you. No, he's gently inviting them to lay behind what will never satisfy those fears and uncertainties that they're clinging to and come to him to find rest and peace and joy. And so he points to his care of the birds of the air and his care of the flowers of the field to show that God's care is a faithful, attentive, and generous care. And because of that, we can trust him to take care of the things that are beyond our control. And so you, Jesus isn't saying, don't be concerned because there's nothing to be concerned about. He isn't saying, don't be concerned because there's no uncertainty in the future or difficulty in the present. He's saying don't be concerned because ultimately your concern doesn't get you any closer to the control that you long for, right? What can you do to add a single hour to your life? 
or a hair to your head, if you will. There's nothing you can do but rest in him. And so as you're churning with these thoughts, you're saying, God, I know that somebody has to have an answer to this question. And I trust that you do. God, somebody has to have a solution that solves this problem. And I trust that you will. God, this problem is so big and the situation is so difficult. Somebody's got to stay up through the night in order to attend to all that is involved in this. But I trust you are. So I'm going to bed. And when I wake up in the morning, I trust that you'll be just as faithful then as you are to me right now. So how do we stop worrying? We recognize that worrying doesn't get us any closer to the control or the comfort that we are seeking. We find freedom when we can say, I don't have control, but I trust the one who does. Maybe you need to just write that on a note card and put it on your dashboard or on your mirror as the home screen on your phone. Because if you struggle with this the way I do sometimes, it's so easy to forget. We say, God, I love you, I trust you, I know you're going to care well for me. But then we get that gospel amnesia. We focus on the situation and circumstances that we're in and our problems seem big and God suddenly seems small. Philippians chapter four, verses six and seven reinforces this truth with these words. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You see, the freedom that you are seeking comes through surrender. The joy you are seeking comes through dependence. The kingdom that you are seeking ultimately comes by loving and trusting the king. And that when we do that, we not only lay up treasure in heaven, but we experience his peace and joy and long-suffering here on earth where the Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts. But he continues now in verse 32. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He says the Gentiles, the pagans, are the ones that live in this way, constantly racked and concerned with worry and anxiety. So when we begin to live filled with anxious thoughts and overcome with worry, we are practically living like atheists, claiming to know God but living as if he made no difference in our lives. And I've never seen this more clearly than in the past year and a half as a pastor. Because the hope that we have in the gospel shines that light of hope when we lose someone. It shines that light of hope when the preferred candidate we wanted to get elected doesn't get elected. It shines that light of hope when we are living in a country that is torn by polarized opinions and deep-seated division. That we say, this world is not my home. This kingdom is not what I'm living for. I'm going to rest in my God who loves me. I'm going to follow him faithfully, and I'm going to trust that he has everything under control so I don't have to. But now he comes to these final verses that we know so well but struggle so much to put into practice. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What Jesus is calling us to is a radical reversal. He says, stop seeking your kingdom. Stop putting your agenda first. Stop letting your heart be devoted to idols that ultimately can't satisfy and will lead you astray. 
And so when, if we want to seek God first, it begins with repentance, of recognizing that we have not sought the things that we should seek and we have not loved the things that we should love in the ways that God has called us to. So Jesus is calling us to a radical reversal in our lives and we must humbly repent and surrender our entire lives to him so that his agenda is first and ours is second. As Jesus says in, in the Lord's Prayer, not my will, but your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so that's the prayer we have to constantly pray, but let's get really practical in these last couple of minutes that we have. When we repent, as we examine our hearts, what are the things that we have to put off? What are the kingdom of self facets that we need to reject in order to pursue God? Let me just walk you through this chart really quickly. If we're going to repent, we first of all have to reject living for the approval of people. We always want somebody to like us. We want their approval and their applause. But if we are living for the approval of people, then we are not ultimately living to please God exclusively. So instead, we are living for an audience of one, doing everything that we do and investing our lives that someday we might hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Secondly, we refuse to be selfish with our money, either spending it on ourselves or hoarding it for ourselves. Instead, we invest for eternity. We give what we have to do what we can to build the kingdom of God by his grace and for his glory. Thirdly, we say, I'm gonna stop trying to control my life, trying to manage these facets that I ultimately can't control, and I'm gonna surrender to God's control because he is worthy of my worship and he is faithful in my life. Fourth, I'm devoted to achieving success. If we lay that aside, then instead we can focus on what really matters in the kingdom, and that is the character of God as it is lived out in our relationships with one another. Finally, we have to reject the kingdom of self that says, I constantly want to be right. I wanna be the one who knows the most, who's, who wins in the argument. But if we really view things from an eternal perspective, we say, I don't wanna be right. I wanna be righteous. I wanna be humble. I wanna grow in the context of community so you can help me see where I need to grow and I can do the same for you. And if we seek first his kingdom, if we put our priorities where they need to be, Jesus assures us that all of these things will be added to you. That doesn't mean you're gonna have millions of dollars in fancy cars in your driveway, but rather that even if God doesn't bring you out of the valley, he'll be walking with you through it. He'll be faithful to you in it, and that you will find there is a peace and a joy that this world cannot give and it also cannot take away. I understand you had a beautiful picture of this in the missionary couple that was sent out last week to return to their home country at great risk to themselves that they might seek first the kingdom. And perhaps God's not calling you to take that step, but maybe he's calling you to loosen your grip on that thing that holds your heart. Maybe he's calling you to trust him more and to learn that he is good and he is faithful he is kind. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we prepare to come to the table, we recognize that our hearts are prone to wander, that we are so quick to pursue what we want and abandon what you want, that we need your grace to forgive us and we need your power to enable us to follow your leading, to be filled with your spirit, to produce the fruit that only you can produce in our lives. God, I pray that even as we respond now in worship and through the worship of, of communion, 
that we would examine our lives and our hearts, that if there's some sin that you've unearthed, that we would confess it knowing full well that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you for this privilege of worshiping together this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.